Mark chapter 9, starting at verse 14. And when they came back from the disciples, they saw a large crowd around them with some scribes arguing with them. And immediately the entire crowd saw him. They were amazed and began running up to greet him. And he asked them, What are you discussing with them? And one of the crowd answered him, Teacher, I brought you my son, possessed with a spirit that makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it dashes him to the ground, and he foams at the mouth, and he grinds his teeth and stiffens out. And I told your disciples to cast it out, and they could not do it. And he answered them and said, O unbelieving generation, how long will I be with you? How long shall I put up with you and bring him to me? And they brought the boy to him. And when he saw him, immediately the spirit threw him into convulsion, falling on the ground, and he began to roll about and foam at the mouth. And he said to the father, How long has this been happening to him? He said, From childhood. And has often thrown him both into the fire and into the water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, If you can, all things are possible to him who believes. Immediately the boy's father cried out and began saying, I do believe, but help my unbelief. And then Jesus saw that the crowd was rapidly gathering. He rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, You deaf and dumb spirit, I command you to come out of him and do not enter him again. And after crying out and throwing him into a terrible convulsions, it came out, and the boy became much like a corpse. And most of them said, He is dead. And Jesus took him by the hand and raised him, and he got up. And when he came into the house, his disciples began questioning him privately, Why is it that we could not cast it out? And he said to them, This kind cannot come out by anything but prayer. Pray with me now. Let's ask God to help us understand this passage. Father, here we are before your word, and Lord, I ask that you would please speak to us through it and bring about the things that only you can bring about. Help us to understand the meaning of this event and this passage, but help us not just to understand it, but to understand you better, come to know you better, come to trust you better, or strengthen our faith during these moments together. Please help us in Jesus' name, amen. Faith is what we're going to be talking about this morning. I believe that's the main point of this passage, but Before we can talk about faith, I have to talk to you about demons. Now, how many of you came in thinking that that's what I was going to introduce with this sermon? Demons. How many of you woke up thinking about demons this morning? I have to talk to you about demons before we can get into the big idea of the passage because demonic altercations are such a major theme in Mark. We're working our way through the Gospel of Mark. 
And in the first seven chapters, there are six mentions or altercations with demons. What are we to make of this? His first, Jesus' first authoritative work in Mark was casting a demon out of someone in Mark chapter 1. Later in Mark chapter 1, it says that the crowds brought many who were oppressed by demons to be freed by Jesus. Many. The idea is that in the city where he was, there were tons of people who were oppressed, maybe even possessed by demons. Later in chapter 3, the scribes accused Jesus of being demonic. In chapter 5, Jesus cast demons out of the man who was living in the tombs, and they filled a flock of pigs, and the pigs ran into the ocean. Do you all remember that? What? What is going on? In chapter 6, when Jesus sends out the 12, he gives them, he tells them to go preach the gospel, and he gives them authority over demons. To free people from demons. And then in chapter 7, a Gentile woman comes and begs for Jesus to free her, her daughter, who's not even with her. And from a distance, Jesus frees her from a demon. It was just a major part of Jesus' earthly ministry. And I know we've talked about it as we've worked our way through Mark, but I don't know if we've stepped back and just looked at what is going on with all these demons. I mean, should we... Be expecting to experience demonic activity in our world today at the same level that they did? Has something changed? Should people expect that their first encounter with Jesus' authoritative ministry is going to be a demon yanked out of them? Should we expect many people among us and that we know to be struggling with demons? I mean, if it was still going on at the same rate that it seemed to be in Mark... I would be getting more calls for demons, dealing with demons, than I do for people in need of financial assistance or hospital visitations. A major part of my week would be going around casting demons out of people. Do we need Jesus to authorize us to cast demons out of people like the disciples when he sent them out? Have you ever wondered about it? I, it's something that's been sort of festering in my mind ever since we've been studying Mark. I have, this isn't, this is sort of an aside before we can get to the bulk of the sermon. So I'm not going to spend a great deal of time here, but I do think we need to honestly ask the question. And I have three considerations for us before we move on to talk about faith. The first is this. This kind of demonic activity This kind of activity and this um, frequency of demonic activity is pretty unique in the Bible to the Gospels and Acts. Now, demonic influences are present throughout the Old Testament, but we don't see the frequency of these acute demonic infestations throughout the Old Testament like you do in the Gospels and Acts. And then after Acts, as you read the letters of the New Testament— the reality of the demonic is there, but you don't see this frequency and this focus on people being possessed by demons and them needing to be cast out. So it seems as though something unique is happening during Jesus' earthly ministry and during the establishment of the church while the disciples were still roaming the earth, still authorized to uh, be demon punchers as they established the church. 
The second consideration is the way demons are talked about changes after Acts. If you read through the epistles and how demons are discussed, there's a shift. And it goes from these acute mentions of demons to more chronic mention of demonic influence. So, for example, let me read to you Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. Paul is writing to the Ephesian Christians and he's reminding them of their situation before they came to faith in Christ. And he says, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which, in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air. Now most biblical scholars agree that this is a reference to Satan and his cohorts. Following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the whole rest of mankind. So the idea here is that we're all under demonic influence apart from Jesus Christ because Satan and his cohorts have their tentacles in everything in this world. And the whole worldly system apart from Christ is, in this sense, demonic. And so before we become Christians, apart from Christ, every human is following the prince of the power of the air. Every human is one of the sons of disobedience who is blindly and slavishly following the influence of these demonic forces in the world. And the, the language about what we do about this shifts as well. You don't hear really anything about casting out demons throughout the epistles. Instead, what you hear is the powerful effect of God's saving grace through Jesus Christ regenerating us. And then the average, everyday graces of the spiritual disciplines as being sufficient to keep us from all harm from demonic influences. So even here in Ephesians where he sets that up that you were all in trouble, all following the prince of the power of the air, what does God do? In verse 4, it says, But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So the idea is that God looked down and he sees humanity in this vicious, terrible situation, eaten up with our own sin, but also caught up in this swirling vortex of Satan's influences in this world. And what he does is not to dispatch a bunch of people to cast demons out of people. He sends his son, Jesus Christ, whose death once and for all cancels the power of Satan for all who would believe and follow him. You can read in... Ephesians 6, more about God's plan for us, how to stand strong against the influences of our enemy. Ephesians 6, verse 10, he says, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God, that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. So there is very real spiritual warfare going on. Okay, The demonic aspect of reality is still in effect. 
But I do not believe that we should expect to see people possessed by demons like it happened when Jesus was on the earth. I think that was a unique period in history. But it doesn't mean that we're any safer from demonic influences now. It just means that it's chronic and it's pervasive as opposed to acute the way it was experienced during Jesus' time. So then what we do to stand strong is take up the whole armor of God that we may be able to withstand in the evil day. And then it lists them out. The belt of truth, the breastplate of righteousness, the uh, shoes of the gospel of peace, the shield of faith, the helmet of salvation, the sword of the spirit, and prayer, praying at all times. All these miraculous means of grace that we've been given through Christ are sufficient to protect us from the demonic. Now, I realize that is a uh, somewhat bizarre thought to hit you with right at the beginning of this sermon because we modern American Christians don't tend to think along these terms. But we need to be reminded that these, these are real things. And the stakes are high. Okay, we need Jesus' supernatural power just as much now as they did back then, even if we don't see all these cases of people infested with demons like that. Now, that's not to say it can't happen or never happens. But I hope that that might help you think about it a little bit more clearly. Uh, It's helping me to think about it a little bit more clearly. But throughout, even in the Gospels, when there's so much demonic activity just destroying humanity, one human at a time, even in the Gospels, the demons are not the point. The point is the faith that God is trying to bring about in people through Jesus' ministry. So, okay, we've talked about demons. I just wanted to talk about that. And we'll set that over here for now, even though I'm sure you've got many questions. But let's remember that the focus in the gospel is not on demonology, but on faith. The point of the gospels, as Mark describes in John, I'm sorry, as John describes in John 20, verses 30 through 31. You can look that up sometime if you don't believe me. The point in the Gospels is that we might believe in Jesus Christ. John says there's many other signs and miracles that he performed. I can't write them all down. But the reason I've written any of them is so that you would believe in Jesus Christ. So in our passage, Mark chapter 9, we read of another account of a demon altercation. But we see that Jesus' focus is not the demon, but the faith of the people around So let's read again, beginning at Mark 9, verse 14. And when they came to the disciples, that's Jesus along with three disciples, Peter, James, and John, after they had been, uh, after they had seen the transfiguration, they come down the mountain, and when they came to the, the other disciples, they saw a great crowd around them and scribes arguing with them. And immediately all the crowd, when they saw him, were greatly amazed and ran up to him and greeted him. And he asked them, what are you arguing about with them? And someone from the crowd answered him, teacher, I brought my son to you, for he has a spirit that makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it throws him down, and he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast it out, and they were not able. And he answered them, oh, faithless generation, faithless generation how long am i to be with you how long am i to bear with you bring him to me 
So here Jesus confronted right after he gets down from the mountain of transfiguration with another demonic crisis. And he seems frustrated. Whenever you picture Jesus, do you ever picture him frustrated? I don't know if I ever picture him frustrated, but here we have to say he seems pretty frustrated. And why is he frustrated? It's not really about the demon. He doesn't say, oh, you demons, stop it. Oh, another demon? No, he's frustrated with the people. He says, oh, faithless generation. That word generation indicates he's talking about everybody. So he's talking about the scribes who were there arguing. They were probably pointing out the disciples' failure to cast the demon out and saying, ha, I knew it, you guys are a fraud. But he's also talking about the disciples. And he's talking about the father who has his sick son with him. And he says, oh, you faithless generation. All you people are faithless. How long am I to put up with you is the literal translation of what my Bible phrases, how long am I to bear with you? How long am I to put up with this? It's not the response I would have expected from Jesus. So there must be something important here. Why is he frustrated with these people? Oh, faithless generation. The Greek word that's translated into faith and faithful and faithless here and often belief or believe, it carries with it the idea of um, being persuaded or being convinced. And his frustration seems to be, you guys are still not persuaded or convinced that I'm authoritative over all this, are you? You're still not convinced, still not persuaded. This isn't the first time that he has seemed a bit frustrated at people's lack of faith Remember back in Mark four forty, the disciples and Jesus are in a boat and it's stormy and the waves are crashing around on them and you know they're out in the middle of a, a huge sea, so it would have been pretty terrifying. And Jesus is just sleeping. And so the disciples wake him up and he comes out and he you know, he says, All right, storm, stop, storm stops, everything calms down. And then he turns to them and says, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? Now, I don't know about you, but if I was in a boat in the middle where I can't see land anywhere and it's really stormy, I think I would have been afraid. But Jesus here seems to indicate if you had the kind of faith I'm looking for, you wouldn't be afraid, even in this storm. Why are you still? He says, do you, have you still no faith? Even after everything you've seen me do, all the authoritative ministry I've done, all the ways in which I have proved that I am the unique Son of God, empowered by God Himself. Have you still no faith? Then later in Mark 5, 36, Jairus had come to Jesus and asked Him to come and heal his daughter. Jesus gets held up on the way by a woman who touches His garment and is healed. And by the time He gets there, the daughter seems to have died. So obviously people are upset. But Jesus says in verse 36, Do not fear, only believe. So here again is this expectation that people aren't going to, they're not going to fear, they're going to believe. The more they come to understand Jesus, they're not going to fear, they're going to believe. 
One more example in Mark chapter 6, verse 6. He goes to his hometown and he comes through and people are weirded out by him because they know him as the carpenter's son. And then in verse 6, he marveled because of their unbelief. So Jesus almost has a hard time believing that people still aren't putting their faith in him. And that seems to be his frustration here in Mark chapter 9. Jesus' earthly ministry was in part about convincing and persuading people to have faith in him. To put faith in him. Whatever is going on in your life right now, I can guarantee that one of God's biggest priorities is that you have faith in him. That's not often one of our priorities. We just want the problem solved. And we get fixated on the fear itself. But God's priority is not always to calm the storm or raise the daughter. But it's for us to trust him. And sometimes he leaves us in these uncomfortable situations so that we have an opportunity to put our trust in him. So whatever your priority was coming in here, I'll bet his priority for you is, trust me. So the question we need to be asking ourselves as we wade into this passage a little further is, how is my faith? How is your faith? What are you trusting in these days? There's two examples of this faithlessness that we can glean from the rest of the passage. One is the Father, and the other is the disciples. So we'll look at the Father's first. Verses 20 through 24. And they brought the boy to Jesus, and when the Spirit saw him, immediately it convulsed the boy, and he fell on the ground and rolled about, foaming at the mouth. And Jesus asked his father, how long has this been happening to him? And he said, from childhood. And it has often cast him into the fire and into water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, but if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, if you can, if you can, all things are possible for one who believes. Immediately the father of the child cried out and said, I believe Help my unbelief. If you can. There's a major difference between if you can and if you will. Earlier in Mark, a leper approached Jesus in chapter 1, verses 40 and 41. Listen to how the leper comes to Jesus. It says, he came to him, imploring him, and kneeling, said to him, If you will. You can make me clean. Moved with pity, Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him and said to him, I will be clean. But this father comes to him and he doesn't say, if you will, have compassion on us. He comes to him and says, if you can, if you can do anything, help us. And Jesus calls him out on it immediately. If you can. All things are possible for one who believes. Now, we can stop here and have one application for our lives that's just immediately helpful. Okay, so whatever is going on in your life, whatever burden you may be carrying, whatever concern plagues your mind when you lay your head on your pillow at night, okay, the question is not ever if God can. Okay, the question is if he will, but he absolutely can. 
God is absolutely perfectly capable and he's absolutely perfectly compassionate. So he's capable and compassionate. Those are given. You never ever have to wonder if God is capable and if he cares. Because he can and he cares. The question is never, can you? It's, will you? So he goes on to say, all things are possible for one who believes. Now this is problematic. Is this a universal promise that we can all take to the bank and believe that, okay, if I just believe hard enough, I can fly? If I just believe hard enough, an extra $5,000 will find its way into my bank account? Is the reason that I am not flying right now because my belief is deficient? If only I was better? Is the reason why there are poor people in the world because they're all weak in their faith and they just need to get up to speed? Does this mean that God always heals people who truly believe and trust in Jesus Christ? Well, I think we all know that the answer is no. And just like demonology, I think it's helpful to think a little bit about this. You know, in the broad context of Scripture, miraculous healings are kind of similar to these miraculous demon extractions. They are found in concentrated doses in the Gospel and Acts. But you really don't see it that much throughout the Old Testament, and you really don't see it that much throughout the rest of the New Testament. It's not that it never happens, and it's certainly not that God can't do it anytime he wants. It just doesn't seem to be the focus. Something unique is happening while Jesus is on earth and while the church is being established. Okay, God is firmly displaying Jesus' authority over both the spiritual realm and the physical realm throughout the Gospels. Firmly holding up Jesus and saying, this is my son, believe in him, trust in him. And all the miracles and signs and wonders are just meant to firm up our faith and belief in the Son, Jesus Christ. And then through Acts, to help people to see the authority given to the disciples, the apostles, as the church was being established. But these miraculous healings just don't seem to be the priority the further you move away from that time period. One example of this that I had not thought of, but that I I read as I was researching for this sermon is a simple one that you would overlook in 1 Timothy 5.23. I want to read it to you. You guys aren't sleepy, are you? We're talking about demons and healings here. Okay. 1 Timothy 5.23. Paul, writing to his beloved son in the faith, Timothy, giving him all kinds of instructions as he pastors his church, says in 1 Timothy 5.23, in a parenthetical, it's in parentheses, no longer drink only water, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. Well, what's the problem, Timothy? Don't you believe? Why do you need to add a little wine to your water? Why are you having all this stomach trouble? Why is your tummy hurting, Timothy? You don't need a little wine in your water. You need a little bit more belief. Why are you having all these ailments? must be your faith. I've told you before when I worked at a warehouse with a bunch of guys, it was really fun, a bunch of African-American Pentecostal guys. They challenged my theological thinking in so many ways. But one of those, I had terrible allergies, and I was allergic to dust. And if you've ever worked in a warehouse, 
The main thing warehouses store is dust. And so I was miserable all day long every day. And this one guy in particular was convinced that it was because I had sin in my life. And that I didn't have the faith to believe God for deliverance from my allergies. Well, you know, for I'm just a kid, basically. I thought, maybe he's right. I'll pray a little harder. We're not promised that God is going to constantly heal our every ailment if we just believe. If that was the case, we would all be immortals by now. There'd be people here who were 3,000 years old. No one would die. The fact is we live in a fallen world and we do get sick and our bodies are damaged. Just like all of creation is damaged. So we get sick. We will die if Christ doesn't return first. Okay, this isn't a universal promise that we can use to name it and claim it anything we want. God will do it if I just believe strong enough. What he's doing here is he's turning the focus onto the man, the father. He's turning the focus onto the father and he's pressing home the point that the question is not if I can do this. The question is, do you believe in me? The question isn't, can I? The question is, can you trust me? So again, for our thing, for whatever we're carrying, whatever we're worried about, are you praying, can you, or are you praying, will you? And are you trying to use your belief and your prayers as leverage to make God do what you want him to do? Or are you trusting him? Are you putting your faith in him? Trusting him not only to provide and answer your prayer, but also to know what's best. The point is to believe in him. To see that he is capable and compassionate. And to believe in him. To trust in him. So the man cries out with the perfect prayer. Our, this should probably be your new prayer. And my new prayer Verse 24, immediately the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. I believe, help my unbelief. That is the way to walk the Christian life. Publicly professing our belief in Jesus Christ, the Son of God, yet honestly, honestly open about the weaknesses of our faith. None of us believe perfectly. Thankfully, our salvation doesn't rest in the perfection of your faith. It rests in the perfection of the one that you have faith in, Jesus Christ. But we can all pray like this man. I believe, but my belief is tainted with doubt and fear. Help me in my unbelief. The way Hebrews 12.2 puts it, we live our Christian life looking to Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, to help us fill in the gaps of my faith. Broaden my faith, deepen my faith, strengthen my faith. Because Jesus can. Jesus is capable and compassionate. So one way the unfaithfulness of this generation and uh, perhaps unfaithfulness in our own hearts is revealed is if you can sort of prayers, if you can sort of thinking. Another way is revealed in the disciples. Verses 25 through 29. And when Jesus saw that a crowd came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, You mute and deaf spirit, 
I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. And after crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out. And the boy was like a corpse, so that most of them said, he is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up, and he arose. And when he had entered the house, the disciples asked him privately, why could we not cast it out? Remember, they had been casting out demons. When Jesus sent them out, he gave them authority to do that, and they had been doing it. So they're confused. Why couldn't we do it? In verse 29, and he said to them, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. This kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. Why couldn't you do it? You weren't praying. I guess they were just trying to do it. I guess they were just trying to do it under their power. I guess they were just trying to trust in their own uh, demon extraction methodologies, and they weren't praying, and so they failed. And we tend to do this too, lean on our own selves and settle for human results. The disciples learned their lesson. If you read through Acts, you see a very prayerful early church. They waited for the Holy Spirit before they went out and started to try to evangelize. They knew they couldn't do it on their own. And we need to learn the lesson too. So the question here for us is, how are we handling our troubles? Do we first roll up our sleeves and get to work, or do we begin with prayer? How are we trying to move forward and minister as a church? Do we first brainstorm the perfect programs, or do we begin with prayer? I'll close with a consideration of what it would look like if we got this perfectly. If we all just, if God just hit us with a bolt of faith lightning and we all just, perfect belief, what it might look like. And I picture a child in the dark. Any of you ever afraid of the dark when you were kids? I had a fear of the dark. I had a room for a while that actually had no door. Because technically it wasn't a room per se, but it was sort of like an alcove and off of a hallway in our house. And so at night, it was just this big black abyss out there. And I couldn't stand it. It was scary. You know, as children, children are naturally afraid of the unknown of the dark. Now, if there is a parent sitting with you in that darkness, the fear just disappears. Okay, if you're still afraid while you're in the dark with your parent, it shows that you're not only afraid of the dark, you're afraid that your parent is either not capable or not compassionate enough to protect you. So I've wondered in this situation, what did Jesus expect these people to be like? I mean, here's a child getting thrown to the ground convulsing with a demon. Why did he get frustrated with them? And why was he not more compassionate with, with their fears here? I think his point was, I've been with you long enough that even in the face of this, you really shouldn't be afraid. I know you're a child in the dark, but I am right here with you. I know the dark is scary, but you don't ever have to be afraid that I don't care or that I'm not capable of taking care of whatever needs to be taken care of. So what would this look like if we perfectly had the kind of faith Jesus is calling for here? I think, one, it would just look like calm. I don't think we would get bent out of shape nearly as much. I don't think we would be so afraid. 
I don't think anxiety would be such an issue. I don't think in the face of all the political turmoil that we would, we would be um, speaking the same way the world speaks as though we have no hope beyond our American leaders. I think there'd be a calmness there. I think, too, there'd be a prayerfulness there. Jesus seems to connect with the disciples. Their faithlessness is expressed in the fact that they're prayerless. So I think we'd be calm. I think we'd be a lot more prayerful. And I think that we'd be a lot more powerful. Because through prayer, we would be accessing the power of God. Now, I praise God that I think that he is bringing this about in us. I think this morning's prayer meeting was an example of that. I think he brought that together. I'm excited about next Sunday to see who he brings and what he has us pray for, what prayers perhaps he answered this week. But whatever you're facing this week, I just want to remind you that God's priority in your life is your faith in him. So if your circumstances are not calm, perhaps it's because through that he's trying to draw out your faith. Like that father. That father was in a really bad situation. Okay, and Jesus didn't just make it all better right away. What Jesus did was look at him, like maybe he's looking at you now, and saying, trust me, believe me. He is capable and he is compassionate. We can trust him and we can pray. We can be calm and prayerful and powerful in Christ, even in the face of the scariest of life circumstances. Let's pray together. Father, thank you so much for your son, Jesus Christ. Let us not live like scared children in the dark by ourselves. Let us live in the peace and freedom and confidence that comes from being in your presence. And we confess together that you are capable and you are compassionate. And there's really no room for doubting that as we read about you and your word. Thank you for reminding us. Help us to live in light of it this week. In Jesus' name, amen.